So we've been talking about um, joy and the superabundance of joy, um, and Mary and the joyful person and the joyful presence in, in our own lives and our marriage. And it's great, and we love it, but eventually, what are we going to have to face? The cross. The cross is going to come. It could be trial, persecution, sickness. We are going to have to face the cross. There's no Christianity without the cross. And suffering, not suffering for its own sake, we'll see suffering that has been transformed into a redemptive act. And so, you know, I preached on it last weekend. I read this article, which I'm able to read this book called Wintering. And, and it's not a Catholic book. The woman, I don't even think it's really Christian, but she's just reflecting on winter and different stages in her life. And there's this one paragraph that it, I was very powerful. She goes, we expect it to be summer all the time. <laughs> all the time. And, and maybe really in southern Louisiana, we expect it to be summer all the time. Because God loves us. And he's going to shower us with graces and every good thing. And he's going to fulfill the desires of our heart. And blah, 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 blah. And it's wonderful and it's good. But that ain't how it works. Summer comes to an end, and maybe if we like lived in Nebraska, we would realize that better. Winter is going to come. We are going to have to face the cross. It could be a, like a short winter, like, like a few ice days, or it could be a very, very long period of suffering. And we can't control it. We don't have a weather controlling machine. The cross is going to come. And one of the points that she makes in there is, is so often people think of life is, is, is sort of linear. But in reality, she says, we can learn a lot from the seasons. They're seasonal. Jesus, taking this up, uses plants and, and, and the seasons and very sort of real, sort of, I don't know, pastoral, natural things for analogies for the faith life. And so if we don't want to take the seasons that, hey, winter's going to come, but guess what? Winter will end. And then, you know, hey, spring's going to come again. We just have to weather it. And take the liturgical cycle. We as Catholics, you can't say that we see world as linear. There is cyclical. You know, it's Christmas is here, and we have all this wonderful celebration and joy and liturgies and mass, and then there's the epiphany and Mardi Gras, whatever. But then Lent comes, and you can't escape it. You just kind of can't escape it. And it's going to be 40 days. And it's a reminder of those seasons of our life. But of course, it's over. And then you can start eating Cadbury cream eggs and doing all that, that kind of stuff. And so it is. I think there's a certain expectation that we all have, and our, our, me too, in our very comfortable existence. And a very controlled existence. I mean, part of that she, used, she makes is like, you know, it used to be, and, and you know, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, when it was dark, it was dark. You couldn't work, you couldn't do anything. You need to live in those cycles. Here, we, we can manipulate. If it was really, really cold, and it was negative 20 below zero, a little fire is not going to be enough. And you need to prepare for it. So her point is, we know winter is going to come in our lives. We need to be prepared for it. Um, so the cross is going to come. We need to be prepared for it. How are we going to win, winter the storm? And so, yeah, it comes in our own lives, but it's going to come in families. 
there's going to be times of winter. There's going to be the cross. Families, couples are going to have to walk up Calvary, and it is going to be unpleasant, and sometimes they don't make it to the top. Sometimes we don't. We fall, and that's just how it works. And so if we want to, to, to again, I take the winter thing, but transpose it into a Christian perspective, how do we survive the cross? How do we be like Mary? And to look at her and what she can teach us when suffering comes, and it's going to come. And many of us may be suffering from it right now. And everybody has a different way that we suffer, um, different way that we encounter the cross. So yeah, I get to suffer the cross next week. I gotta get a root canal during Holy Week. Oh, awesome. You know, it's not gonna be that bad. They're gonna do it, the small, I might have the little inadonis do it, but. So I go, look at that, I have something to offer. But you never know. Put the cross in my mouth, right there on my molar. Um, <laughs> under, under the crown too. Anyhow, bad tea. So what, 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 let's look at Mary. Let's look at Mary at the foot of the cross to, to see what she can teach us. Um, you can look at all the different passages. We're gonna really focus on John 19, John's account. The first is this, and this is another part that we don't normally think of, but it is very true for Mary, but also for us. Again, we, we don't think of Mary as joyful. She's very prayerful and somber. But also, Mary had a deep, dark faith. Mary is a woman of faith. We often confuse faith with vision. Mary, she believed. So she saw Jesus, and everything was easy, and he glowed, and everything was wonderful, and the angel spoke to her. Faith and vision are two separate things. Jesus did not have faith. Jesus had vision. We're not going to get into that. But Mary didn't. Mary had faith. So, and faith is belief in things that you cannot see. And so guess what? It was really dark for Mary. It was not easy. I think well, faith is easy for Mary. Love is easy for Mary. Well, to a degree, yeah, because she doesn't have concupiscence, but she still had to practice faith, hope, and love. She had to respond to the grace that was given. And faith is not easy. And so if Mary, if faith is believing when you can't see, a trial of faith, darkness, then by logic, Mary's faith was going to be the darkest. And then we look at that, I think, in our own lives, but then we can look in the life of Mary. So I want to pose a quote from Flannery O'Connor, a great Catholic author. Um, she had a documentary on, which was fantastic, on PBS. I encourage you to watch it. Uh, didn't deal too much with her faith, but a lot of her letters and her life. And so we fall into this trap, as I said, that faith is supposed to be easy. You know, faith would be great. Oh, they particularly think for the priest, faith is easy. Oh, it's easy. For the sister, faith is simple. Not at all. So listen to this quote from Flannery Connor. It's so wonderful. This Flannery Connor was so honest. She just said it like it was. There was no BS. Uh, she said, I think there is, a, this is a letter she wrote, I think there is no greater suffering than what is caused by the doubts of those who want to believe. I know what torment this is. 
but I can only see it, and myself anyway, as the process by which faith is deepened. A faith that just accepts as a child's faith, and all right for children. But eventually you have to grow religiously as every other way, though some never do. We want to stay on the faith of the little tricycle, and we're going to ride, and everything's safe. But if you're going to grow, faith is going to get dark, and it's going to be difficult to be able to believe, particularly in a society where, where we tend to question so much and want to understand things. What people don't realize, she continues, is how much religion costs. They think faith is a big electric blanket, when of course it is the cross. Faith, my faith gets me through it. My faith consoles me. Yeah, in a certain sense, but it's not an electric blanket. It's not warm fuzzies. Faith is the cross. It is much harder to believe than to not believe. Think about that. No, I don't have to believe in whatever I want. Much harder to believe, particularly when you, you're having to face so many challenges. If you fail, you can't believe. You must at least do this. Keep an open mind. Keep it open toward faith. Keep wanting it. Keep asking for it. And leave the rest for God. So even if you fall and you struggle in faith, the darkness comes. And it's going to come for everybody. God, why are you allowing this? Keep pressing on. And expect that it's going to be difficult. So again, if, if that's true for us, Imagine for Mary, who never fell, who never didn't believe, but still, it wasn't explained to her. The angel didn't say, let me tell you every single thing that's going to happen for the rest of your life, and it's all going to be peachy keen. No, you're going to get a cross, you're going to get a sword stuck through your heart. Your son is going to be the rise and fall of many, and no explanation. So this is Ratzinger. Again, Ratzinger, tell it like it is. I love it. Mary is the great believer who humbly offered herself to God as an empty vessel, for him to use in his mysterious plan. Without complaint, she surrendered control of her life. She did not try to love according to human calculation, but put herself completely at the disposal of God's mysterious, incomprehensible design. This is faith. She did not understand everything that was happening. All she wanted to be was the handmaid of the Lord, the instrument and servant of the word. Therein lies her true fame. <coughs> that she remained a believer despite all the darkness and all the inexplicable demands God made on her. Think about it. Why do I have to go to Egypt? Why am I getting this kid born in a, in a manger? Why is everybody killing him? Why can I have this kid living in my house for 30 years? I mean, then the cross. I mean, face it. What, this, it didn't all make sense to her. She did not have the beginning vision. He continues, today God is still mysterious indeed. He seems to have a special kind of obscurity in store for each person's life, which I think really ties into what Flannery O'Connor said. But could he ever render any life as dark and incomprehensible as he did Mary's? That's something to think about. We do not think about that. Blessed is she who believed, even when this faith became a sword that pierced her heart. This is the real reason for her greatness and her being called blessed. She is the great believer. I mean, think, how, how many parents have a hard time believing when their child, when does their child die or persecuted or suffer? Why do you allow this? Mary saw it. She knew Jesus was innocent. But God didn't say, this is how it's all going to play out. Mary had the greatest faith. She had the darkest faith. She was still joyful, but the cross was there. And so... We do have the cross that's going to come, but it doesn't come. And this is what Mary understood. 
dark as it is, the cross isn't there just to make us miserable. The cross is there, we embrace it out of love. So she was able to see Jesus embrace the cross. Why? Because he had to shed his blood for our salvation. He had to give his life for our salvation. So if you can have faith and it's dark, unless you have love and hope to a great degree, then guess what? It ain't going to work. And so this, this cross was the, the means of salvation. I think that's the problem. Pick up the cross, pick up your cross. The cross is just torture unless you love. We are willing to suffer for those whom we love. Mary loved Jesus, so she was willing to suffer the cross. Jesus loved us. He was willing to suffer. And then, of course, there is hope in the hope of the resurrection. So this whole point is to say that Mary is a great example of faith because she experienced it much worse than we ever will. Much worse than we ever will. Because she had no, no it was like crystal clear. So Mary had nothing to stop. Nothing to halt it. So she had to feel the full brunt of the cross, the full brunt of faith. But her love and her hope is those virtues that were able to push her through. So let's, that's the first thing. You know, I think we need to come to an acceptance of what the cross is and what faith is. Faith does help us endure the cross, but we also certainly, certainly need love. That is crucial. Number two, Mary at the foot of the cross is silent. Silent. And notice she's not present. She's not in control. She can't do anything. She can't do anything. Can't fix it. Can't take Jesus off the cross. And this is a quote that I used earlier, and Robin will remember it. It's from Adrian von Speyer, who worked with Hans Urs von Balthasar. And she talks about Mary. I love this quote. It is in this state, the mother is united with the son who gives everything, even a spirit, back into the father's hands. It is a surrender beyond all being able, bearing, enduring. It is nothing but the pure state of no longer being able. What does that, that, that mean? Mary the foot of the cross. I can't do anything. I can't fix it. I can't understand it. I can't make it better. All I can do is stay there. Stay there at the foot of the cross in faith. And so often when we encounter suffering, particularly someone we love who is suffering, we want to fix it. We want to say something to make it better. And sometimes maybe we'll be inspired to do that, but, but sometimes... We just have to be silent. You know, a lot of the times in our own lives, we're not going to explain it away. We just have to learn to accept it, particularly if there's another person who's suffering. You know, one of the things that I, as I'll be honest, as a priest and as an introvert, I don't like. I do not like anointing the sick in a hospital. I do not necessarily like going to funerals, people I don't know, and I don't like going to, to halls where there's a death or wreck. I'm just, I, I feel uncomfortable. And I feel like, what am I gonna say? What am I gonna do? And when I was young, you know, I try to say something to explain it. Why did this person die, whatever. You know, so, so this, this week, I got called to go to the aftermath of a suicide. I haven't done that in a while. And that's one of the, next to the death of a child, that's, I mean, I don't even know. I can't say it. 
and I've learned it's awkward. They're, I mean, they just found the body like two hours before, and so much shock, sadness. What am I going to say? Hundreds of people, and I've learned whether it be in that situation, the hospital, it's that Marian loving presence. All you got to do is be present, and I've seen that. People have never told me, Father, you said this thing that consoled me, or Father, you said this thing that was very wise. No, Father, you were just there. You were by the bedside, or you, you went in and anointed the person. People remember that, and, and so in our own lives, it's, that, it's not just the presence, but it's the loving presence, and that's what it, love gets you through the darkness. As, you know, as, as dark as it gets, as rough as it gets, love will push you through. I mean, think of it in your own life. If there's some suffering situation, you don't love the person or you don't love the individuals involved, forget it, I'm out of here. But you may do it out of obligation, but if it's out of love, you're going to go the extra mile just in being present. And so there's this helplessness of Mary at the foot of the cross. There's the helplessness of Jesus. I mean, he's nailed to the cross. He can't, he can't really do anything. Again, he's, he's making his offering out of love for us. He's giving himself. But Mary is there standing at the foot of the cross in the same way she stands in solidarity with us when we are suffering, when we're on the cross, when our family's on the cross. So solidarity isn't encouragement necessarily. Hey, I'm with you. Sort of an empathic presence. And we've got to, to realize that, and I think meditating on Mary's no longer being able, just not giving up, I can't do it. We have to adapt that attitude sometimes. I can't fix the situation. There's nothing else I can do. Whether it be a sickness, or it be a death, or it be someone who hates you, or losing your job, or, or a broken relationship, or whatever it is, nothing you can do about it. Sometimes you can, but most of the times it's not possible. You just have to learn to stand in solidarity and that Mary is with us. And really, tying it back to, to, to what we had mentioned before, which all we're discussing, here's Mary. She formed Jesus, she loved Jesus, but she's got to let him go. And this is an extreme example, but you know, the, the letting the child out of the house, that's a painful thing. Letting the child make their own decision, getting married. But here, watching your own child die, letting him go, not easy. Not easy. But when we have to do that in our own lives, whether we're on the cross or we're standing next to someone on the cross, or we're in the situation of the cross, because sometimes the other people have the cross and we're there, we're married. Sometimes we're on the cross, whether it be our situation or family, whatever it is. It's that loving presence is what really matters. Just you're sitting by the bed of the sick loved one. That's all you need to do. You don't need to say anything. You don't need to fix it. You need to be present in love, even when it's dark and silent. But, but what we notice, though, and, and this is important, that Jesus did not abandon his widowed mother. So she's, she, she's a widow. She's about to lose, lose the son who took care of her. In Jewish law, you had to take care of the widows. So here's Jesus, even as suffering, thinking of others. And this is, of course, your argument why Mary was a perpetual virgin. 
If Mary had other children, by Jewish law, they would have had to have taken care of Mary. They would have had to take care of Mary. But there's no one else there. Jesus made John her son and his brother because now he becomes the son who is in charge of taking care of Mary. There's no way. I mean, Mary would have been, if Mary had the children, she was the worst mother because all those other kids, those brothers and sisters, weren't there at the foot of the cross. For her son, is, their brother is dying. Complete jerks. So no, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So, so John and Mary, by Jesus, were given to each other. I think we, on the last retreat, we talked about the givenness in John Paul II. And that people are given to us in our lives. Spouses are given to each other. Our children are given to us. Friends, loved ones are given to us, and we are given to them. And, and so if you look at the Greek, it says that John received Mary, and often is translated into his home. And I'm not a Greek expert at all. But really, I don't think it's the word for home. It could be translated his, his things, his self. You may even say into his heart. Like she took devotion to him, not like necessarily a physical house, took, took her into his things. And so the same way we've always interpreted this passage as we are called to receive Mary as our mother. We're, we're all John. One scholar argued that it's also the um, argument for... Episcopal, when the bishop dies, the passing on of the, of the, the, the what do you call it? Can't think of it right now. Oh, what is it? Succession. Succession, yeah. So Jesus, who took care of Mary, was the bishop of the priest, now passes it on to John, the care of the church. So the apostolic succession, that's a different, that's a different argument. But the thing is, 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 and I talked about it last Easter, John receives Mary, but it was reciprocal. Mary received John, too, into her things, into her home, into her heart. And this is what we want to focus on. So, yeah, okay, Mary's faith, our dark faith, Mary is with us in these difficult times. But just as John took Mary into her home and we're supposed to take Mary, Mary takes us into her home. We're her children. And so I, I think you look at it, the Immaculate Heart. I mean, it sounds pious and devotional, but Mary's heart becomes that, that pure place where we enter into. The, the, Mary's heart becomes the home, that, that, that place, that safe place. And so, and I think this is the real way. So not only at the foot of the cross is Mary standing beside us, but we are called to find a home in Mary's heart. And, and that's going to be through genuine cultivating a devotion to her. So how, how do you do that? How do you live or abide in the Immaculate Heart of Mary? One of the favorite titles is the Refuge of Sinners. Refuge is a safe place. And so well, let's say we're suffering. Let's say we're feeling guilty because we've, we're suffering as a result of sin or a lack of faith or something we did or something was did to us or persecution. Mary is never going to judge you. Now the consolation was probably for Jesus. Jesus was the son of God, but his heart hurt that Judas betrayed him. Mary would never betray you. Everyone else could betray you, turn their backs on you. All of his friends left, and Mary won't. When you feel isolated, whatever, our lady will never, no matter how bad you think you are, no matter how much you've screwed up, she 
she's not going to necessarily say you're going to get out of prison if you screwed up really bad, but she'll still be there with you. Um, and also, in tying it back, we talked a lot about shame and how Jesus didn't shame others and Mary didn't shame others. But it's a example. Mary didn't. Sh we shouldn't shame our kids. We shouldn't shame our children when we're punishing them or disciplining them. And be very careful of that. I see that a lot. Even parents who do not intend to shame their kids, things that happen do shame them. And because of the sensitivity of this generation, it has a lasting impact. Even if you didn't intend to do it, just be aware of that. So when we come to Mary as that refuge for sinners and our shame, I love that scene from the Passion of the Christ. Peter in shame comes to Mary. Mary embraces him. Peter can't accept it. Peter runs away. But no, Mary will never shame us, never do it. And that heart is pure and sinless, pure and sinless. In our world today, and so she loved purely, in our world today, we see so much struggle with sexual impurity and fallenness and, I don't know, boundaries, whatever you want to call it, a lack of chaste love, a grasping in these different ways and the pain that comes. And I believe, and I talked about this years ago, the reason so many people struggle with chastity today is they've never been loved chastely. They've never experienced it. And so in Mary, you know, to that experience of in prayer, of being loved in a chaste way, and I think that's what reports of that virginal love and images of Mary in the world. She this experience of being loved in a chaste way that can be transformative safe, particularly if there's a lot of suffering because of sexual sin um, in the world today. People who've, who've been used or who have fallen and experienced tremendous shame. Mary also is willing to share her memory with us. If we're at home, she's willing to share her memory. So we know that she kept everything in her heart. And this idea of Mary is the memory of the church or Mary's memory was something really important to John Paul II. Talked about it a number of times. And so John came to learn so much about Mary, about Jesus, from his own experience there. But I'm sure, sitting at home, I'm a little cup of coffee. Mary is telling her about Jesus, but filtering it through her memory. So he's, she's seeing Jesus through Mary's eyes, through her prayer, and, and through years of meditating on it. And so through our having a relation with Mary, and particularly I think the rosary, that mystical dimension, to say, Mary, I want in praying this mystery to have access to your memory, to see this as you saw it. And so being close to Mary, so we can see things from her perspective and, and her memory in a way that we can't from our own. So she, she can shed light on the life of Jesus, but I also think on our own lives, to give it a different perspective and cultivating that devotion. And then, fi then finally, no, actually not finally, number four, that, that heart really is a home. Yes, it's a refuge for sinners, but a home is a place where we're seen, known, and loved, where we're delighted in, a place of belonging. When you come home, it's got to be peaceful. You know, there's a place of belonging, not of strife, a place of rest. I think that, that Mary's heart is a Sabbath. It is the place of rest. That we can, that, and so you remember Jesus, 
going out all the time, coming back home. Imagine the rest that he found with his mother, just kind of being silent there. The consolation that he took on the cross. I wonder, we talked about the impact on the male heart, what kind of impact Mary had on the apostles after Jesus ascended into heaven? Did they go to her? Was she watching out, you know, cooking for them, taking care of them? I think so. And then ultimately, finally, through all this, and, and we find the home in Mary's heart, particularly during rough times, when there are storms outside. We can find she's there with us. She shows us how to weather the storm, but we can weather the storm in her home, in her heart. I know this is a pious, mystical language, but somehow it, it's true. But in, in experiencing it, the consolation that comes from Mary in devotion, an encounter with Mary, whether it be through prayer or through another, channels that Mary in love, we teach, she teaches us how to make our hearts home for others a safe place, a refuge, a pure place. She tidies it up, particularly for our spouse and for our children. So it's this place of belonging um, that so many people are, are looking for. And I think that's what we can sort of pass and trying to wrap this up a little bit. Talk about suffering. A lot of the suffering that most of us experience it is a deeper interior suffering. We're blessed that we don't have, you know, purulent wounds all the time, and we're you know, have a backache. We can take up a pill. We have a pretty easy life. But most of it is, is this interior psychological, emotional suffering, self-critic, or, or accusations, or, or relationships that have broken apart, and loneliness too, and isolation. We see that in the young people. That's the biggest fear, to be lonely, to be isolated. Um, and so they're looking for a home. They're looking for a place to connect, a place to love. And so Ratzinger, talking about um, the Sabbath, and he talks about it as a search for rest and leisure, and particularly how we can find it, or we're supposed to find it in the liturgy, but really in parishes, in our parish home. I'll give the quote, the last part is the important part. Concerning ways to make the parish community an inner home prior to what goes on in worship, not just worship, where people want to come, and I think wisdom does it. I think wisdom does it better than other places. A home that absorbs industrial society's compulsion to get away and gives it another goal. Like, I gotta get away on the weekend. I wanna escape from creation. Instead of finding in our parish a home, I am of the opinion that all the getaways we witness may be directed at diversion, relaxation, encounter, and liberation from the toils of everyday life, but behind these totally legitimate desires to escape, there's still a deeper yearning. The longing to find a real home in brotherly communion and to experience a real contrast, that is, the longing for something totally other in the face of the glut caused by the immense scale of what we have made. So, so he's basically, you know, we have all this stuff we've made, we're working, and we have this chaos in our society, but ultimately, what are people looking for? They're looking for a place to belong, they're looking for a home, they're looking to be seen, known, and loved. And that's what a parish can communicate, that's what the domestic church ought to communicate, and that's what the individual person's heart ought to communicate as a home. 
talk about it later today, all this stress, the stuff going on about identity politics in our world today, this is what people are looking for. They're looking for an identity. They're looking to be loved. They're looking to see themselves in relationship. These people who are getting caught up in all this insanity are some really broken, lonely people. I see it on a frequent occasion. I haven't seen a happy one yet. And what happens is, is they gravitate towards these organizations that give them identities that we knew or know are not going to help with human flourishing. When the church is the one that ought to be doing it, not saying, oh, everybody come in and do whatever the heck you want. No, 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 no. There's something much deeper than that. Your identity lies in something deeper than your sexual proclivities. It does. I don't care what it is. But yet, we're failing at that as, I think, parishes, as a church, and as, home, as individuals. How do you do it? I don't know. But it's something that I think needs to be done. Because that, that's, that's the suffering. Where we can be like Mary, that refuge... But there are some people who are really, really suffering out there. And much deeper, that internal suffering, Mother Teresa says, much worse than any kind of physical bodily suffering is that internal suffering that people experience. And we all know people. It could be children, it could be family, friends. We all, we all know people like that. What are we doing to, to create that, that, that Marian home, not only standing in solidarity with these people, trying to welcome them in? There's complications with that, of course. They don't want to come in, and sometimes they do come in, and they just trash the place. But that's part of the risk you take. It's part of the risk you take. So I know we're going to head to mass in a little bit. Just, just of our own reflections. You know, when the cross comes, when the winter comes, do we, do we, how do we handle it? Do we say it should be summer all the time? This is not fair, Jesus. You're supposed to give me all good things and fulfill every desire of my heart. Number two. Or are our homes places of rest? Whether it be your physical home, or whether it be your heart. It could be for your children, for your spouse, for others. I mean, is there, is there a Sabbath there? Is there a, is there a rest like in the Immaculate Heart of Mary? And then I think also, imagine maybe being with John and Mary at home, having a cup of coffee. What was that discussion like? What was it like seeing Jesus through Mary's eyes? And maybe focus on one aspect if they're discussing the cross. What was it like for Mary to be there? What did she see? And then for those who are interested, if you want a little, little uh, multimedia, Audrey Assad, who we know um, has some beautiful songs, she has a song released last year called Island, which is, I think represents a lot of what's talked here. So maybe if you want to listen to the song and reflect on the lyrics, it's called Island. Um, A-S-S-A-D, Assad. So why don't we just close the glory be, and then I'll give instructions of what we're doing moving forward. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, and is 